0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's byt dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 49, and it's titled, Is Money Dying? The title for today's show came from a book I read over the weekend, and this is almost a companion episode, episode 42, All Countries Are Insolvent. After that episode, I got an email from a listener, Mark, and he asked, had I ever read anything by James Rickards, who is associated with this term, Project Prophecy? Now, I had heard of James Rickards because I used to follow him on Twitter back in 2010 when he was writing a book called Currency Wars, which came out in 2011. Then he had this other book called The Death of Money, The Coming Collapse of the International Monetary System. And that's where I got today's title from that book, Is Money Dying? The Death of Money. Now, this whole idea of Project Prophecy, I hadn't heard of. I did a Google search for James Rickards and was somewhat surprised because he seemed to be sort of connected with this idea of imminent doom, of things. In fact, this whole Project Prophecy was some some software package that the CIA had that they could predict. And and essentially, all things were going to fall apart and they associated with May 2015. Now, I don't know if James is saying May 2015, we're going to get the collapse of the international monetary system. I didn't necessarily get that out of his book, but this was on some of the websites that he would interviewed for And there was this whole idea that dollar is going to collapse, monetary collapse. I firmly believe in reading things that I might disagree with. As a believer in God, I love to read the books of Richard Dawkins, who is a renowned atheist. And as a believer in—I guess I can't really say I'm a believer in the monetary system— But as a believer in complexity theory and complex adaptive systems, I tend to be very skeptical of short-term predictions that something is going to collapse. And so I wanted to read the book. And I, I read the book this weekend, and I was fascinated by it because James Rickards didn't come across as fanatical. He came across as a very balanced position, and I was pleased to see that he also is a proponent of complex adaptive systems, and he actually gave kind of a brief summary of what it was. You know, what do you need for for complexity to exist? And we talked about complex adaptive systems back in episode 15, Stop Worrying About the Next Market Crash. Well, for a complex adaptive system, you need four elements. You need diversity of agents, you need connectiveness- so you have, you have a different agents acting independently, but they're connected in some way, and you have interdependence between these agents and all the phenomena. And then you have adaptive behavior, and you can and you can read more about that in episode fifteen, or listen to more about it in episode fifteen. But the idea is that it's like a sandpile. It's the example I gave in back in episode fifteen. You drop a a kernel, grain of sand on a pile, at some point you're going to get an avalanche. And, and Rickerts makes the same point, although he uses a, an avalanche with a... started with a, essentially a snowflake. So one snowflake will cause the avalanche. But the idea is you have all these agents, these kernels, these grains of sand, these snowflakes that pile up, They're diverse, but they're connected and they're interdependent. Now, your typical sandpile doesn't adapt, doesn't have adaptive behavior, but financial markets do. The opposite of complex adaptive systems, or one opposite, would be something called reductionism. And what is a reductionism? And I'm going to quote from Stuart Kaufman, who wrote Reinventing the Sacred, because I think it's important to contrast complex adaptive system to traditional science, which involves reductionism. And reductionism is the view that society is to be explained in terms of people, people in terms of organs, organs by cells, cells by biochemistry, biochemistry by chemistry, and chemistry by physics. To put it even more crudely, it is a view that in the end, all of reality is nothing but whatever is down there. At the current base of physics, quarks are the famous string of string theory, plus the interactions among these entities. So reductionism is you're always trying to get to the smallest element, and it's at the very base that is the essence of reality. Now, one element of reductionism is, all right, once you get to these little pieces, you sh- there should be a upward-pointing explanatory Arrow that should yield some type of deductive understanding. Now, you should be able to make predictions. If you got all the small pieces, ideally, you can take those pieces and they will explain things as you look back up. Because you look down, reductionism down to the smallest piece, but there should be an upward explanatory arrow that yields some type of understanding. It doesn't work that way. And Stuart Kaufman in his book, who I just quoted, talks about one reason. He says, first, we're agents. You and me, we're agents. We act on our own behalf. We do things. In physics, there are only happenings, no doing. In other words, we adapt. We make choices. This whole idea of agency is an emerging phenomena. There are things that emerge that aren't down at the smallest level. In other words, everything doesn't get down to just the pieces. As those pieces combine together, they, they evolve, they emerge. New things are created from those pieces that can't be broken down into simpler elements. Here's another quote. The upshot is we do not know beforehand what adaptions may arise in the evolution of the biosphere. Nor do we know beforehand many of the economic evolutions that will arise. Biosphere and human economy are not only emergent, but radically unpredictable. We cannot even pre-state the possibilities that may arise, let alone predict the probabilities of their outcome. What does that mean? That means that the world is incredibly unpredictable because of this idea of emergent Phenomena. So back in episode 15, I said, well, what do we do about this? We can't predict what's going to happen in the economy. We can't predict what's going to happen with the monetary system. And I said, first, don't listen to doomsdayers who are convinced financial calamities are imminent. They don't know. James Rickards is saying monetary collapse is imminent. And we're going to look at reasons why he thinks that. But that immediately makes me skeptical. Second, I said, since avalanches are infrequent, the most logical course of action is to assume the next grain of sand will not cause an avalanche. In other words, we should stop fretting about the next financial calamity and the impact it could have on our life. Third thing I said is know that financial calamities will eventually happen, so we need to scale our exposure to risky assets such as stocks based on our ability to recover from market sell-offs. In other words, focus on the extreme Not the average, but don't spend all our time worrying about that extreme event. Fourth, while it's impossible to predict when a market downturn will occur, it is possible to know when conditions are ripening for a financial calamity. And that's really Rickards sort of the main thrust of his point. In other words, he's looking at things that he considers conditions that can lead to some type of market collapse. And he he defines a collapse of the monetary system as simply the loss in confidence by citizens and central banks in the future purchasing power of the dollar. The result is holders dump dollars either through faster spending or through the purchase of hard assets. So what are these four imminent threats that he's concerned about that could play out over the next few years? The first is financial warfare and i thought this was really fascinating and i think it's a legitimate risk but it's it's not something that i could say is imminent it's just one of those elements that could happen in the future and by financial warfare it's this idea that covert hedge funds could such as a, a state sponsored hedge fund that is sort of a sleeping cell acting like a hedge fund, creating clients or, or attracting clients, managing money. Everything looks legit until one day their fat thumb places some trades that massive selling, it's a highly leveraged in futures or options, something that essentially spooks the market and causes some t- type of collapse. The other way you could have a financial warfare would be some type of cyber attack that compromises the order entry system for securities. And, and these are the type of remote scenarios that you really can't plan for. If, if some country or some terrorist group wants to have a sleeper hedge fund sell and suddenly try to compromise the markets through their sales, well, that is, is definitely something you just can't predict. But the way you prepare for that is make sure that, again, as I said, you never have exposure to risky assets that you, you need the money in the next couple of years. And although you get a 30%, 40% sell-off, if you need that money, that can be a problem. So you have to always scale your exposure to based on extreme events. And we've talked about that in earlier episodes. The other imminent threats he talked about is hyperinflation and deflation and and I'm going to do a future episode, probably episode 41. Next next episode is episode 50, which is sort of an anniversary episode, so I'm not going to do a, a heavy financial topic, investing topic on that, but probably episode 51. I think there has been rumblings that we are in a period of deflation right now or, or getting close to it. And Rickard sort of really sees it, a, a two possible ways we could go. We go to hyperinflation or we can go to deflation. And I, I want to do an episode just sort of The the contrast between those two, not describing what they are, but just conditions that could lead to it. I know I did an episode, I think it might have been episode two, on inflation, deflation. But I think we want to, just given what's happening now, tie in some of the topics we've discussed in earlier episodes, especially as it relates to the central bank. Now, the fourth thing is really the focus of this episode, this market collapse monetary collapse and what could cause that. And Rickards has a portion of his book that he talked about what money is. And back in episode one, we gave a definition of money and talked about what money is. He gave some definitions and money is, and this is really a, common, a commonplace definition, money is a store of value. It's worth something and it's worth something because there is a level of trust. And back in in the Reagan era, there was this idea we need to trust but verify. And one way Rickert describes as, as verifying trust is through contract law. So what is a dollar? A dollar is essentially a Federal Reserve note. A dollar, if you look at a dollar, it says, essentially, it's a promise to pay by the central bank, by the Federal Reserve. It is debt owed to the people. It's a perpetual non-interest bearing debt. It's just there. And then the question is, well, why does it have value if it's just a piece of paper, what's known as fiat currency? Back in episode one, I gave a reason. Dollars have value. One reason is because federal government, the U.S. government, requires taxes to be paid in dollars. And so it, the the Federal government essentially has a monopoly on the currency that we have to pay our taxes with. And this is similar to other countries. And so there is an inherent demand for dollars because we need them to pay taxes. But a dollar also has value because we trust in the entity that is sponsoring dollar, that being the Federal Reserve. And... Rickard's point is if we lose confidence in that dollar for whatever reason, that could lead to a monetary collapse. And later I'm going to talk about one reason individuals, households, and institutions could lose confidence in the dollar. And that and for the same reason, you could lose confidence in the euro. And this gets back to federal debt, which we talked about. In episode 42. But the, before I want to do that, there was this idea, and this was probably, in my mind, the most fascinating area of the book. At least it was eye opening to me. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Chapter nine of the book is about gold. And we talked about gold and money for the rest of us back in episode 37. And I sort of explained my love-hate relationship with gold, how it had some benefits in terms of inflation hedge, but how you couldn't value it. And But I described how to go about buying it. Well, this chapter was so really clarified to me I've been looking at it the wrong way. And here's what he said. First off, he says, we could go on our own personal gold standard. So fiat currency is currency that doesn't have any intrinsic value. That's the type of currency we have. That's what the dollar is. That's what the euro is. That's what the yen is. Central banks or governments do have some gold reserves, but the currency is not tied to gold directly. Back when everything was backed by gold, it was called the gold standard. Rickard says we could go on our own personal gold standard. If we decide to convert currency to gold, that's just like going on a gold standard. But he describes what gold is not first. He says gold is not a derivative. ETFs, futures contracts are not gold. There are derivatives of gold. They might hold gold, but only outright physical ownership of gold without any pledges or liens, and have it stored outside of the banking system, that is gold. And that's what I recommended in episode 37. Buy gold coins, store it outside of, well, by outside of the banking system. I'm going to store my gold in a safe deposit box at a credit union, which technically, I guess, would still be somewhat, at least in the physical banking system. Two, he said gold is not a commodity. It's not consumed or converted into anything. It's just gold. Which is interesting because I just recorded an episode for the Money Tree Investing podcast that'll come out in a couple of months about commodities. And and if you buy a commodity ETF, it includes gold there. And he's saying gold is not a commodity because it's not used for anything. It's not an input into anything. In fact, that was the definition I gave for commodities. It's something, it's a basic item that is used for something. But gold, even though it's part of commodity ETFs, is not used for anything. Yeah, it's used for jewelry, but more because it's still a store of value. Third, and this was kind of cool, gold is not an investment. An investment is something you, it's a real resource. You convert money into an investment so it earns some type of income. He says, true money, such as gold, has no return, because it has no risk, just like a dollar. A dollar by itself doesn't have any return. You have to convert it into something. And so gold doesn't have any risk at all because it has no maturity risk. There is no future date when it will turn into gold. There's no counter, county party risk if, counterparty risk if you hold it in the physical element as opposed to a future contract. And, and so if there's no risk and no return, then how can gold lose value? And the idea is gold doesn't lose value, the currency that it is priced in lose value. So if gold is strengthening, it's because of a concern that in the confidence in the dollar, or if gold is weakening, then investors are becoming more confident in the dollar. And so gold is not an investment, and we should stop looking at it as an investment. We should look at it as a form of money that you can go on to a personal gold standard if you hold gold. And you can go back to episode 37 and, and look at how I recommend buying gold. And, and I don't currently have any gold, although I did order some yesterday simply based on this book. Not because I believe the monetary system is poised to collapse. I am far from that because I, think, I don't think anyone can predict that, and I don't see it. But it may happen at some point, and it's good to have yet another diversifier in my portfolio. Now, let's switch to a topic that really has Rickard's concern, and that is the sustainability of U.S. government debt. I discussed this in episode 42, and I alluded to that at some point, if markets got spooked and didn't necessarily want to own U.S. debt— that the central bank could step in and buy it and monetize it, or the federal government could set fixed interest rates at a certain level, and and the central bank would essentially force, would buy enough bonds to enforce that interest rate cap. That's what occurred back during the 1940s. It could happen again. But they might not do that. They might... Instead, allow inflation to actually take hold and monetize the debt. And I'll revisit that in episode 51. So we're talking about a complex adaptive system. Radically unpredictable, the idea we don't really know what's going to happen. That would be one reason to own gold. But what we can do is understand the math that leads to the unsustainability of government debt. It's not the absolute dollar amount of the debt. It's the size of the debt relative to the economy. We measure the size of the economy by gross domestic product. That is the total value of goods and services produced in a nation during the, in a year, the amount of its output. There's a paper referred to in the book that I read. It's called Crunch Time, Fiscal Crisis and the Role of Monetary Policy, written by David Greenlaw, James Hamilton, who writes the Econo Browser blog, Peter Hooper, and Frederick Mishkin. They went through the math, and there are some mathematical relationships we need to understand to see whether a nation's debt is unsustainable. Because at some point, perhaps there is a tipping point where confidence is lost and investors flee and interest rates skyrocket. We don't know what that tipping point is, that that level is. If you look at Japan, for example, Japan's debt relative to its gross domestic product, is over 200%. Yet, it continues to have some of the lowest interest rates in the world, 10-year government bond yields in Japan, 0.3%. You contrast that with Greece, their debt to GDP is 175%, so lower than Japan, yet their 10-year government yield is 11%. Now, here is one of the key mathematical relationships you need to understand When a nation's interest rates on their government debt is above their growth in their economy, in other words, the nominal GDP growth in the U.S., nominal GDP growth over the past several years has been 3.8 percent. We typically show GDP as reported in the news on a real basis, but on a nominal basis, so before inflation, 3.8 percent. If that growth rate is higher than the average interest rate paid on the debt, so the average interest rate paid on U.S. debt is about 2%, then if a country runs a balanced budget, their debt to GDP will actually shrink over time. But if the interest rate on the debt is above their growth rate, then that debt to GDP will continue to rise. That's a situation Greece is facing. With 11% interest rates their GDP growth rate was only was less than 1% last year. That's the reason their debt to GDP continues to climb, and that's what has markets spooked. And so we need to always look at what are interest rates and what are they compared to the growth in the overall economy, nominal GDP. Now, in the U.S., we actually have interest rates below nominal GDP growth. But the debt to GDP has actually increased slightly the past few years. It went up dramatically after during the Great Recession. We were at 63% national debt to GDP back in 2007. Now it's over 100%. 40% increase driven by the drop in tax revenue and the increase in social safety nets expenditures, unemployment. Back in episode 42, I talked about how governments only control the spending side of their income statement. They don't control the amount of tax revenue. They can set the tax rates, but if citizens, households, businesses, institutions decide to save more, they spend less, income drops, tax revenue drops, deficits balloon. We saw that during the Great Recession. You can go back to episode 42 and revisit those principles. So in the U.S., We've had a situation where interest rates are below the rate of nominal GDP growth. Yet, because we continue to run a deficit, the debt to GDP continues to grow. Now it, it it's stabilized at a very, very low rate. And in all of these relationships work together, you have to look at the interest rates, look at the level of nominal GDP, and then look at the deficit as a percent of GDP. We can look at the math to see when a debt situation is unsustainable. The US isn't at that point right now, nor is Europe. If it's a 100% of debt to GDP that appears to be sustainable for the moment, but the key is to look at the trends. Is it increasing dramatically? Cuz that is what could potentially lose the confidence of investors. And if investors lose confidence in a particular currency, they will either dump it in favor of some other form of money, be it the euro or the yen or gold, or they're going to go out and buy other real assets, such as land, and you'll see a bump up in inflation. So that is really what Rickards talked about in Monetary Collapse. I kept reading the book, waiting for him to turn radical, and really, it was fairly a balanced approach. I didn't agree with with some of what he he wrote about. There were elements of the economy in terms of that the the government really doesn't control their income, the tax revenue per se, and some of those elements that he didn't really address. But by and large, I thought it was a a fascinating book and it was an important reminder to understand we do live in a complex adaptive system that is radically unpredictable and we need to be diversified as much as possible. We need to mind the investor conditions, the market conditions, and one of those conditions I talked about today, look at debt to GDP, look at those trends, and look at the inputs to see if it, a particular country is on a sustainable path or not. Is money dying? No, I don't think money is dying. I don't think a collapse is imminent. But I do think money evolves over time. The monetary system evolves over time. It has evolved over the last 100 years. It will continue to evolve. Perhaps it will be chaotic. Perhaps we'll see a spike in gold someday. I have no idea. But I am diversifying the money I hold. So I'll have money in assets and assets, in dollars, but I think it's helpful to have money in a different denomination, in this case, gold or silver or other precious metals. I think most of our money should be converted to real resources that pay some type of income. In other words, your investment portfolio. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide and I'll email those show notes to you weekly that's also awesome. I'm answering listener questions and providing other valuable content for you. If you would like to explore these topics in more detail, you can do so on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. This is a membership site. We have a core group of well over 100 members who are listening to audio lessons or listening to video lessons. It is a mobile-optimized, audio-centric platform to dig deep on how better to grow and preserve your wealth. That's where I share my investment portfolio. That's where I share a weekly plus episode where we dig into this topic in more detail and more in a casual after-dinner type setting. So you can get more information on that membership site at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I share with you in this episode is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile... I've not provided investment advice. I'm simply providing general education on money, how it works, how to invest it, and the economy. I hope you have a great week. Any questions, please email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. Thanks.